You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 69, The South Joins the War. So for the last few months, my episodes have centered around Boston and New England, with a few detours to Philadelphia or London. Of course, during that same period, there was action happening all up and down the continent. Just as I gave inordinate attention to New England, so did the folks in London. Many in London thought the rebellion could be contained to New England. However, just as they thought the New England problem was only the result of a few bad apples, the ministry also underestimated the geographic scope of the problem. So today I want to give a quick overview of the goings-on in the late spring and summer of 1775 in the southern colonies. When we last left Virginia Governor Lord Dunmore in May 1775, he had tried to take possession of colonial powder. This had led Patrick Henry, leading a thousand militiamen, to confront him. Although they resolved that incident without bloodshed, Dunmore realized he was no longer safe in Williamsburg. In June, he relocated to his hunting lodge in York County. After a few weeks, the militia came looking for the governor there. Following a brief firefight, Dunmore escaped with his family, but not before taking a shot to the leg. Without any regulars to protect him, Dunmore took refuge with the Navy aboard the HMS Foy. He stayed aboard the Foy for several weeks. And after confirming that Norfolk remained under Loyalist control, he set up a base of operations there. In early June, about the same time the governor sought protection aboard the Foy, Patriots broke into the Williamsburg Armory, taking about 400 guns. In July, Dunmore reported to London that the Patriots had taken over the governor's residence in Williamsburg and converted the capital into a barracks for Patriot militia. As Dunmore put it, quote, The people of Virginia manifest open rebellion by every means in their power, and declare at the same time that they are His Majesty's most dutiful subjects. End quote. Although the Patriots controlled Williamsburg, the Third Virginia Convention, effectively now the Patriot-run government in the colony, met again in Richmond. It ordered the creation of two military regiments, appointed Patrick Henry the commander of Virginia's new Patriot Army, and enforced the trade restrictions supported by the Continental Congress. In late August and early September, Mother Nature impacted the war through what became known as the Independence Hurricane. The storm devastated coastal communities in the southern colonies, killing hundreds. It then moved out to sea, leaving only rain for Philadelphia and Boston, but then veered back to land in time to destroy much of British-controlled Newfoundland. The storm destroyed about 25 ships, mostly British Navy and supply ships. 
Among them was a British supply ship called the Liberty, which ran ashore near Hampton, Virginia. Local patriots looted the ship of all supplies and burned it to the waterline. When Dunmore heard about this destruction from his headquarters in Norfolk, just across the river from Hampton, he took the raid on the Liberty as a personal affront, and he demanded the rebels return their stolen supplies. They said they would return the supplies when Dunmore returned their runaway slaves, which of course he refused to do. While the British could not control much land in Virginia, they could control the seas. They had enough ships to launch raids along the coasts and up rivers, capturing or destroying rebel property. With this force, Governor Dunmore raided Hampton, and this would end up being the largest town in Virginia that the Navy ever attempted to raid during the war. To prevent such an action, the Patriots had sunk several ships at the mouth of the Hampton River, blocking any larger ships from passing over the wreckage. Patriots in Williamsburg also sent a regiment to help defend Hampton. On October 26, the British Navy exchanged fire with Patriot militia at the mouth of the Hampton River. After sunset, they attempted a night raid to break up the blockade on the river. The next morning, two small British warships and some smaller support ships made their way to Hampton, unleashing the Royal Marines to destroy the town. On earlier raids, British relied on the locals fleeing in terror as a relatively small number of Marines sacked the town. This time, though, the Virginia militia from Williamsburg defended their ground. The regiment included riflemen who could pick off Royal Marines on the ground or any sailors aboard ship who might try to fire a cannon. The two sides exchanged fire from protected defenses, with neither willing to risk a full-on charge against the other line. As a result, there were only a handful of casualties on either side. The Patriots also captured two small landing craft, taking ten British prisoners and killing one. Eventually, the British pulled back down the Hampton River across the James River to Norfolk. For Dunmore, the raid was a frustrating failure that only encouraged the Patriot cause in the colony. Now, Down in North Carolina, Governor Josiah Martin came under attack shortly after word of Lexington and Concord reached the colony. Following that attack in late April, Martin sent his family to stay with relatives in New York while he relocated to Fort Johnston, a small fort near the mouth of the Cape Fear River. By May, Patriots controlled the colony. Having taken control, the people wanted to proclaim their freedom from British rule. Now, North Carolina often brags that it produced the first Declaration of Independence more than a year before the Continental Congress got around to releasing the famous one that we all know. The basis for this boast by the North Carolinians is the Mecklenburg Resolves. In late May 1775, after receiving word of the fighting in Lexington and Concord, the Committee of Safety in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, issued a set of resolves. Now, just about every revolutionary committee on the continent was issuing resolves around this time. Everyone was stirred up by the fighting and wanted to define what they were fighting for. Mecklenburg stands out, though, as one of the first calling rather clearly for independence. The Mecklenburg Resolves proclaimed that all British civil and military authority in the colonies was now null and void, with that power passing to the Continental Congress. 
until such time as Congress could produce a whole new legal code, the resolves went on to set up a militia which would perform the duties of civil government. Now, if you want to take a look at the full resolves, you can look for a link on my blog, blog blog.amrevpodcast.com. This really was a radical step to take. Long before, even the Massachusetts Provincial Congress was willing to nullify all British rule. So these resolves are the reason that many claim that history should praise Mecklenburg and North Carolina for its leadership on independence. The reality, though, is that the Mecklenburg resolves were really not that significant at the time, at least not outside of Mecklenburg. They did not get much press or publicity outside of North Carolina. Most members of the Continental Congress never even heard of them at the time. Therefore, as radical as they were, they had relatively little impact on the overall movement toward independence. What does make them interesting is that it shows that the southern colonies did have a significant radical patriot faction among them that was ready for independence. It shows that the people outside of radical New England were fast reaching the conclusion that compromise with the king and parliament really was not an option. Protection of liberties in America would require a clean break. Mecklenburg was not unique in its expression of outrage of British behavior in Massachusetts. Nearby Tryon County also issued its own set of resolves a few months later. Like Mecklenburg, Tryon also condemned the actions of the British in Massachusetts. It also agreed to form a military organization to resist attacks on their liberty. Tryon did not go so far as to explicitly void all government and laws, but it did make clear they were ready to go to war with British authorities. These resolves, and many others like them, showed that the Patriot movement in the South was alive and growing. Soon, actual fighting in the South would reinforce these sentiments. Governor Martin, during this time, could not find enough North Carolina Tories to provide himself even with a personal guard, let alone raise an army to take on the Patriot militia in the colony. As I said, Governor Martin had set up a base of operation at Fort Johnston on the coast. From there, he sent out messengers to inform slaves that he was willing to arm them and allow them to fight for their freedom. The North Carolina Committee of Safety, under the command of Cornelius Harnett and John Ash, kept tabs on Governor Martin's activities. Now, as I've said in previous episodes, the fear of a slave revolt was something that really kept Carolinians up at night. They were hugely outnumbered by slaves in terms of population, and if the slaves ever really decided to rise up, it could mean big trouble for them. As a result, upon learning of his attempts to arm the slaves, the Committee of Safety moved to capture the governor and prevent any attempt to start a slave revolt. Governor Martin, of course, was prepared for this. He removed the fort's cannons and positioned them along the shore, where they sat under the protection of a naval ship, the Cruiser. On July 18th, several hundred Patriot militia stormed the fort and burned it to the ground. The attackers, however, were unable to capture Martin or the ship's guns, as storming the artillery looked like suicide. Governor Martin ended up taking residence aboard the cruiser and remained at sea. The handful of British regulars at the fort also escaped and shipped off to join the main British force in Boston. Martin, however, remained just off the coast. 
he sent reports to his superiors that he believed he could raise a large force of loyalists to retake the colony, but could not organize such a force without help from a large force of regulars that the militia could rally around. So for now, he sat and waited. When word of Lexington and Concord reached South Carolina, patriots there had already effectively taken control of the government and the colonial arsenals. Lieutenant Governor William Bull nominally led the colony as the governor had resigned and returned to London in 1773. Bull was loyal to the crown, but did not seem to put up much of any resistance to anything the Patriots did. On June 14, 1775, the Patriots formed what was effectively a new government for the colony in the new Council of Safety. The council first focused on military matters in the colony, but soon took on pretty much all executive authority. A few days later, on June 18th, a new royal governor, William Campbell, arrived. Campbell was a member of Parliament and also a career naval officer. During the French and Indian War, he had visited South Carolina and married a local woman. This may have motivated him to seek the governorship when it became available. Now, no one seemed to know exactly how to respond to the new governor's arrival. The Patriots had not officially overthrown the colonial government. They were essentially ignoring it. Governor Campbell met a reception of Patriot militia at the dock. He did not get any of the usual welcomes or celebrations attending a new royal governor, but they also didn't arrest him or force him to leave the colony either. Campbell assumed the governorship, but knew he had no real control over the colony. A few days later, the Patriots sent him an address that informed him that they were all still loyal subjects of the crown, but had taken up arms to defend attacks on their life, liberty, and property. Governor Campbell was not quite sure how to take the idea that his supposedly loyal subjects were in armed active rebellion. His response indicated that he could not know of any legitimate government in the colony other than the one appointed by the king, but could not speak to the immediate disputes having just arrived. But simply by receiving and responding to the address, Campbell lent legitimacy to them. In reality, though, Campbell would have to decide whether to leave or likely face imprisonment, as he had no plans to join the rebellion, even though most of his wife's family were patriot leaders. For the moment, he stalled and said he must get instructions from London. Meanwhile, he watched the Patriots form military districts, raise and train armies, and run all aspects of colonial government. Even while the Patriots were taking control of the colonies, the Royal Navy maintained control of the Atlantic as well as many bays, harbors, and rivers. South Carolina, though, also made plans to take on the British at sea. On July 9th, the Council of Safety learned that the British were sending a shipment of gunpowder to Savannah to supply the Cherokee Indians. The British hoped to use several local tribes against the rebels. The Council deployed two barges to intercept the transport ship. On their way, they were pleased to meet up with a small schooner from Georgia named the Liberty, not to be confused with the British ship Liberty that wrecked in Virginia, which I just discussed nor Benedict Arnold's ship Liberty on Lake Champlain, nor John Hancock's ship Liberty that the British captured in Boston, nor any one of the roughly 1.2 million other ships that were apparently named Liberty during this time. 
Georgia Patriots had launched the Liberty in search of merchant vessels violating Patriot trade bans. The captain agreed to work with the South Carolina barges to capture the British supply ship. Now that ship, the Philippa, carried ammunition for British regulars in Florida as well as for the Cherokee. On July 7th, the British convoy anchored near the mouth of the Savannah River to await a pilot to take them upriver. The Americans discovered them there, and the following evening, July 9th, around 2 a.m., the British attempted to move upriver, and the Liberty moved to attack. The stunned Philippa could not put up any resistance and obeyed instructions to anchor at Cockspur Island. The captain of the Philippa, Richard Maitland, also had the bad luck to be the captain of a load of tea in 1774 that the Patriots seized shortly after the Boston Tea Party. Now, on this trip, Captain Maitland once again had to surrender his ship, this time the Philippa, at Cockspur Island, where a regiment of South Carolina provincials rode out and took possession of the ship. They captured about 16,000 pounds of gunpowder, as well as lead and shot for making musket balls. South Carolina divided up the valuable cargo, sending one-fourth of the powder to Philadelphia. From there, it would travel overland to Cambridge, where Washington's Continental Army was in desperate need. A prize crew sailed the Philippa back to Savannah with Georgia's share of the cargo. Captain Maitland eventually filed a protest with the Georgia Supreme Court to get his ship back, though no one really expected that to happen. The Patriots ignored Crown-appointed courts as much as they ignored Crown-appointed governors. I think Maitland mostly filed the claim so that he could get a return of his bond money held by the Board of Trade. The powder would take weeks to reach Washington in the fall, but it was a much-needed supply for the Continental Army. About a week after this, emboldened South Carolina Patriots also seized Fort Charlotte, a small fort on the Savannah River, still commanded by less than a dozen British regulars. On July 12th, the fort surrendered without resistance. The Council of Safety again took much of the powder to be shipped to the new Continental Army in Massachusetts. All Governor Campbell could do was sit and watch. The Council of Safety also began demanding that colonists take oaths of loyalty to the new assembly. Those who did not were threatened with expulsion from the colony. By September, Governor Campbell had reached the conclusion that there was little he could do to restore royal authority without a large number of British regulars. There was some chance that the Germans living in the interior of the colony, whom I discussed way back in episode 35, might still rally to the king, but the organization of any loyalist troops would require the presence of military regulars for the militia to rally around. So Governor Campbell decided it was time to leave. He boarded the HMS Tamar and remained in Charleston Harbor. Despite Governor Campbell's lack of leadership, some backcountry loyalists did take their own initiative. The town of 96, which began as a settlement at the 96th milepost on a trail leading to the Kiowee Indian village, had built a fortified town there. There was a small fort with a few pieces of artillery, as well as powder and ammunition. Moses Kirkland served as captain in the local militia and as the town's representative to the Provincial Congress. He had been an outspoken supporter of colonial rights and opposed British treatment in the colonies. But for Kirkland, outright rebellion and treason was just a step too far. 
As a captain in the militia, he had participated in the capture of Fort Charlotte a few days earlier. And while riding back to 96, he learned that his commander, Major James Mason, intended to force all the men to take an oath of allegiance to the Association and to support the Continental Congress. After they arrived at the fort, Kirkland spoke forcefully against the oath and convinced his entire militia company to refuse it. They then met with Colonel Thomas Fletchall, who commanded a Loyalist militia in the area. Kirkland and most of his men joined Fletchall and returned to take control of 96, which now also contained munitions captured at Fort Charlotte. This Loyalist force arrested Major Mason for theft of the King's property, but released him a few hours later on bail. Thanks to Kirkland, 96 remained in Loyalist hands, at least for now. The backcountry would remain in contention, and Kirkland would go on to become a prominent Loyalist officer during the war. Now, Georgia was the last colony to make serious movement toward rebellion. After receiving word of Lexington and Concord on May 10th, Patriot groups seized a powder magazine in Savannah the next day. But colony-wide royal authority under Royal Governor James Wright remained in control. Wright, although London-born, had lived in the colonies for most of his life and remained on pretty good terms with the people. He would not be mistaken as being sympathetic to the Patriot cause, though. Wright, who had been governor since 1760, staunchly enforced royal policies, including being the only governor to oversee the sale of stamps during the Stamp Act crisis. After establishing a shadow Patriot government in July 1775, the Georgia Council of Safety asserted authority, leaving Governor Wright in the same feckless position as his fellow Southern royal governors. The council enforced the trade embargo that the Continental Congress had approved, tarring and feathering several violators. Georgia also worked with South Carolina to get more gunpowder to the Continental Army in Boston. The Georgia Patriots launched the ship Liberty, which I just discussed a few minutes ago, would go on to capture the British ship Philippa in South Carolina. On July 7th, the Georgia Patriots tested Governor Wright by getting him to declare a day of prayer and fasting. While not overtly patriotic, it was a nod to the power of the patriots in the colony. Now, Despite the organization and activity of Georgia patriots, the colony likely held a majority of loyalists. In August, Thomas Brown, who lived in the North Carolina side of the Savannah River, just upriver from Augusta, openly denounced the patriots and called on loyalists to form their own association. Patriots from Augusta captured him and attempted to force him to swear adherence to the Patriot Association. They ended up beating Brown nearly to death, scalping him and breaking his skull, and also burning the bottom of his feet. Brown survived and would go on to form the King's Rangers, one of the most effective Loyalist regiments of the Revolution. In 1775, though, after threatening an attack on Augusta, Brown and his loyalists withdrew into the backcountry and awaited the arrival of British regulars. Governor Wright stuck it out in Savannah and avoided a direct confrontation with the Council of Safety. Clearly, though, he was not in charge. When a small British fleet arrived in January 1776, Governor Wright fled the colony aboard the HMS Scarsborough. Next week, I'll go over the overthrow of a few more colonies 
as well as the American naval raid on the island of Bermuda. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. In today's episode, I tried to go through all the southern colonies to show how they were stepping up and playing a role in the movement toward independence in the weeks and months after Lexington and Concord. New England, and particularly Massachusetts, tend to get all the recognition, especially at the beginning of the war, and certainly Massachusetts seems to be the epicenter of conflict. The first couple of major battles happened there following the disputes over the Coercive Acts, which of course directly targeted Boston and Massachusetts generally. The Siege of Boston was the focus of attention for the first year of the war. So with today's episode, I really hope to show that it was not just all about Massachusetts or even New England that colonies up and down the coast were extremely active and had motivated patriot factions of varying size. And these factions were more than ready to overthrow the existing governments. By the end of the summer of 1775, all royal governors were either forced out of the colony or at least unable to have any real control over the colony. The British had gotten used to running the colonies without a significant military presence and had no way to get large numbers of soldiers to the scene quickly once they were needed. So once things really got out of hand, the British found themselves behind the eight ball. Now the South, of course, becomes much more center stage in the later years of the war, after Britain pretty much gives up on New England and even the middle colonies to some extent, and attempts at least to secure those colonies in the South for the king. But by the time they get around to that in 1778, it is far too little too late. If the British had focused on the South in 1775 and 76, they very likely could have hung on to those colonies. But instead, they focused on New England, and the Southern colonies had a couple of years to develop a strong patriot control, which the British could not break. So if you're interested in a book that focuses on the war in the South, you're going to love this week's recommendation. The American Revolution in the Southern Colonies by David Lee Russell. Now this book is not very long, less than 400 pages, and it reads a little like a textbook. But it is one of the few books that focuses on the Southern colonies and states during the American Revolution 
and one of the very few that talks about the southern colonies in the very early part of the war at all. Russell has written some other books as well, including one on colonial Georgia and another on the battle for Sullivan's Island. He seems to have taken up his interest as a writer of history following a career in IT, something I can relate to all too well. He's a North Carolina native and currently lives in Georgia. His book, The American Revolution in the Southern Colonies, was first published in 2000. It covers the Southern experience of the war throughout the whole war, not only looking at the dynamics between the colonists and the British, but also the role of Native Americans as well. So if you're particularly interested in this aspect of the war, you may want to check out this book. Well, that's all I have for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.